Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Welcome to Escaping Society, Episode 12, Documentaries. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And this is the last episode of our first season, right? Yep. So we're kind of just going to talk about documentaries uh, that have given us ideas about escaping society or are examples of escaping societal norms or otherwise are informative and inspiring to us. Gumby, would you like to start? Sure, where would you like me to start? Um, right there. All right, yeah, and we happen to be in a hotel room right now. Um, <laughs> so Teresa's birthday was a little while back, and as a, br- a present in the middle of summer, you know, it would be a, a luxury to be in a hotel room for uh, the air conditioning and just kind of vegging out and watching TV. It's a nice treat now and then. Um but it ended up kind of the weather turned sort of pretty at the time, like cooled off. So she took a rain check. So now we're cashing in on it. And once again, it was oppressive heat. And now a thunderstorm rolled in. And, like, it's really nice and rainy and beautiful outside. And we're, like, in this uh, kind of canned room. But it's nice. We'll take advantage of it. We'll, like, catch up on our walking death and all that. <laughs> and we got one more week of summer camp left. Um, yeah, and as far as this being the last episode of our season... I don't know what other people call a season. I've always been kind of confused about that, but we're doing our seasons like every 12 episodes, which is about three months, which to me is the natural length of a season, spring, summer, fall. So this is the end of our first season, 12 episodes. Now with documentaries, Um, I guess just documentaries in general, one of the reasons why I personally was kind of wanting to talk about documentaries is I've always felt like if I had the ability, the technology, the know-how, that what a great way to get your message across. I mean, you've got kind of what we're doing here with the podcast, with your voice. You've got the imagery, you know, if you're good with a camera, and you're just putting it together into a really nice picture. Um, more and more I'm coming to the opinion that the only people you convince are the people that already agreed with you, that there's rarely a time, no matter what you do, podcast, book, documentary that you convince somebody that actually didn't agree with you in the first place. So I kind of think these are all a little little bit uh, masturbatory. I mean, we're just kind of doing this for ourselves. And, you know, if that's what it is, so be it. If this is my way of venting, it does make me feel a little bit better. So I'll take it. Are you about to say something? You're masturbatory. Oh, I am so masturbatory, (laughs) but that's another podcast. Actually, we already did that podcast. Um But, so, the first documentary we were considering talking about is um, Grizzly Man. Grizzly Man, Timothy Treadwell. Um, One of the things I really liked about this documentary is uh, it seemed not very one-sided. I liked at the end that I felt like I had a sense of the man as kind of uh, somebody to call into question, um, you know, his sanity, his approach that he crossed lines that maybe he shouldn't have, you know, there was, I felt like I really got a picture of him that was like not flattering, but at the same time, there were things in there that at least I extracted that I also had admiration for this man. Um, just doing backpacking and, and, you know, hitchhiking and being outside and, you know, having my solitude, I know what a challenge that can be. And so for him to go into the wilds of Alaska, surrounded by grizzly bears, and then to have such faith in whatever he had faith in, I don't know if it was himself 
or the Bears mm. or his fate or some blend of all three. But to have the guts to get as close as he did by himself to those Bears year after year, um, I really admire that about him. I think he was one of those sacred people in our culture that's really hard to define. My understanding of sacred people, like especially the Hayoka model, the sacred clown, is these are people that defy our reason. It's hard to put them in a box. It's hard to say they're good, bad, whatever. And that's their power. They shake things up. They they turn over the, the packed soil so th- new things can grow. And I see Timothy Treadwell as that kind of person. Um, Teresa, you look like you had something to say. Well, I was, I was just going to jump in and... I've only watched it one time, like most of these documentaries, but I remember that Timothy Treadwell was, he was kind of this guy that didn't really fit in in our society. Like he was doing things and people were kind of looking at him like he was weird and he just decided, you know what, I'm going to go live amongst the grizzly bears and see how that works out because this other stuff isn't. And I don't think it was... I don't think it was like a suicide mission because he really brought something beautiful into the world. And yeah, I don't necessarily like, I don't think I could go and dance with the Grizzlies, but like Gumby was saying there, there was something really mystical about what he was doing with his, with his precious life. And I just, yeah, I was really blown away by watching this documentary. And I love the other side, too, especially I think of this um, indigenous man um, that I think he was maybe a park ranger or a biologist. But he said that his people respected the bear. They revered the bear, but they did not cross into the bear's territory. That was considered rude. And that Timothy Treadwell crossed into the bear's territory, that it was not just um, courageous, but also disrespectful. Mm. Um, I really like that point of view. Um, I feel like I agree with that point of view, most of all, of all the points of view expressed, even though I just don't, like I said, I don't um, wholly dismiss Timothy Treadwell. He might be one of those rare individuals that kind of defies the general sense of propriety or ethics. And, of course, if you know anything about this, this documentary and this man, he paid the price in the end. Um, he said he was willing to give his life for the bears, and if he got eaten, he didn't want the bears hurt. And that's one of the tragedies of this story, is uh, he did take a uh, his girlfriend at the time up there, and um, there's this really horrible, like, uh, he stayed there later into the bear season when the food's getting scarce, and the bears tend to get more territorial and grouchy. Um, and there was this one bear that he was new to him that he would talk about as being having a different temperament, uh, an aggressive temperament. And um, so one night he's out there camping, him and his girlfriend alone in these, uh, I wish I could remember the island, but um, this place in Alaska they're at. And um, this bear comes up and he manages to turn on the audio of his camera, but not the video recording part. So there's this audio out there of him being eaten by this bear. And, um, they just briefly described it. They said it was, you know, out of, I guess, respect for Timothy Treadwell and the event. They didn't want to play it. But that almost made it worse because your mind does like, mm. yeah. well, I don't know if it's worse or not, not having heard the, the footage. But, yeah, so this footage of him being eaten and his, his uh, girlfriend, you know, not leaving him but trying to fight this bear with a pan, apparently. And then the bear gets done with Timothy Treadwell and eats the girlfriend and then the... The real tragedy is this man who spent so much of his life fighting for, if not the bears, his idea of the bears. I mean, in his own way, I think it, it can't be argued that he loved these these bears. And um, so they ended up killing this bear and cutting the bear open and finding the remains of Timothy Treadwell and his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's kind of the worst part of it. Not that he gave his life. He was willing to do that. But that in the end it caused the death of a bear and that was the last thing over and over that he said he wanted. Um, Yeah, so it was a poignant documentary for me and I loved the end where it shows the pilot that's his friend and he's singing the song Coyotes. Um, Can't remember off the top of my head who wrote that song, but he changes the words a little bit into a song that honors Timothy Treadwell as he's talking about all these legendary characters and these animals that have passed in 
passed away and have died and um yeah i immediately like wanted to learn that song and i can kind of play my own hacked version of it on the guitar now but uh yeah good documentary it really got me thinking and as far as escaping society goes timothy treadwell you know he's a guy that even though he came back for supplies um wasn't completely out there like a mountain man in his way he was really escaping society he was getting out of the norm he was following his heart even into the hardships the dangerous parts and um to me i have no doubt that he walked a path with heart whether he respected the bears or not he was on a path with heart mm-hmm. and i also liked what you said about how the uh the person from the tribe was saying that he had crossed a line. Mm-hmm. Often I hear that about um, mountains that are being climbed and uh, those mountains are sacred and people die on the, the mountaintop or trying to reach it. So I can also see it from that point of view. Wow, what a downer. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's a really good documentary. So the second one is called Two Rivers. And we just happened to see this at the library. I wasn't really looking for it, but it kind of found me. And it was about um, this guy in Washington State. He lives in the town of Twisp, T-W-I-S-P, like Paul. And he just heard this voice one day as he was walking, and it the voice asked him, like, do you know who are the caretakers of this land, like the original caretakers? And have you planted any seeds to harvest? Like, what are what seeds are you planting for your harvest? And he was like, whoa, what, <laughs> what is that? Like, where is this voice coming from? So long story short, he decides that he'd like to find out more about the original caretakers of this land. And one of the tribes, there's a, um, a reservation nearby, uh, the Colville, I think, reservation. And on this, um, on this land are the, and I hope I don't mispronounce this too badly, the Metau Indians, M, like Michael, E-T-H-O-W. And they decide that they're going to get together and talk, speak from the heart. So the uh, European people that are living in this town, this well-to-do little town in Washington, they start to invite members of the Metau tribe, as well as other tribes, to talk uh, from the heart. And the European descendants that are living in on the land, um, they start to listen, and they start to really like feel how the people were connected and how now everything is, is so different. But the first step is to really listen and have an open heart to all of the stories that these... Uh, that these people had from their land. So I just really liked that documentary. It was really moving. Gumby, did you want to add anything about that? Yeah, in the same way, like I've mentioned in a couple podcasts, Greta Thunberg, and um, like every now and then something happens. Like in our culture, so much of it's predictable. Um, So much of it is just the same old crap. And I wonder why people get so excited as if something new is happening. It's just the regurgitated same old crap. But every now and then something happens that gives me an idea that completely strikes me out of left field. Like, wow, this is something I'd never considered before. And Greta Thunberg is one of those things. Like, wow, you, what if all the kids did boycott school? Holy crap, that's a nonviolent way that could bring our civilization to a screeching halt. And just that same way, when I watched this documentary, I had that feeling. Um, when I watched these white people interacting with these indigenous people, and that the indigenous people said, you know, the white people were just listening. They said that's all they wanted to do is keep their mouths shut. It wasn't about them saying their story because they'd been getting to say their story. America is the story of basically the white people told from the white side. They decided they wanted to listen to these indigenous people. So they made this practice of getting together with them and just listening, listening, listening. And what the indigenous people were saying, what they wanted more than anything else, is get to know us. Come know us. Not some abstract tribe in a history book. Know me. Know me as a person. And... You know, the white people were saying how much they admired being welcomed to these family events, that they were so welcoming and they were reflecting like, wow, you know, my own family wouldn't do this for strangers. Like, that's not the way we'd act. Mm -hmm. And um, this admiration grew. 
And um, as I'm watching this, like, I think both of us, like, kind of teared up. Oh, yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. it was moving because it was this feeling of hope that I rarely get when I'm considering the future of our culture. It was like, wow, what if some of the healing actually came from the indigenous people that we almost destroyed? that are hanging on in there, just in their little reservations and, you know, the marginalized places we've allowed them to be. What if, what if they're not gone? What if actually we had to take ourselves to such a brink of destruction that we're finally, after all this bloodshed, after all this fighting, ready to listen? And what if they hold the key to the path back to sanity? And that's the feeling I got from this documentary. It's one of my favorite documentaries for that reason, because I left just feeling stunned, um, feeling hopeful, feeling moved. And I guess, I, I don't know, hopeful doesn't seem quite the right word because I just, I don't think enough people know how to listen. But to see the potential that mm-hmm. it could happen, I guess is the thing that moved me. Yeah, so I, I highly recommend if you can find a copy of Two Rivers. Um, and man, it made me want to go there to see like, this was about, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago that they um, that they started this. They actually started, like, a, an annual powwow. So I'm just wondering, like, what's become of it? Like, you know, is the powwow still happening, and does it matter, or what? And I was totally prepared not to like this movie. When I first kind of <laughs> started watching it, it was like, oh, here we go. Here's the little liberal Democrat white people, you know, that's going to show, like, you know, that they're not stuck on their white privilege and they're going to extend all their like white beneficence to these, you know, underprivileged brown people. And, you know, we get to see how, how kind these white people are. And I get so sick of that crap that either white people either seem to fall into this camp where they're just really dismissive or abusive towards other people, or they act like they're these condescending parents to help these people. Mm And I was amazed that by the end, this movie had transcended that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something else going on there at the end of the movie. And so I'm somebody who's just like wired to like, if there's white people dealing with like other people, probably not going to like the movie because white people tend to, I don't know. We just seem to be pretty fucked up about a lot of stuff. And even when we try to be good, then we're just fucked up in a whole different way. But this movie was um, exceptional. Yes. Check it out. Um, the next documentary that we watched, and again, this was something that we were just kind of perusing the DVDs at the library, and uh, it starts with an A, so I still had my attention span. Um, <laughs> oh, the beer is flowing. So <laughs> so um, we picked up this movie or this documentary called Accidental Courtesy. And, whoa, talk about another mind-blowing documentary. Um, this one was basically about um, this black guy who befriended one of the, oh, I forget, it's like the Grand Dragon or Wizard or something of the KKK. Um, it was pretty amazing. Gumby, did you want to, I know you probably want to add something to that. Oh yeah, there's a lot to be said about this movie. This this black blues musician, he uh, apparently he grew up traveling Europe because his father was in the military, and he hadn't really run into racism. You know, he'd be like, you know, the, sometimes the only black kid going here or there, and it was just, you know, he was accepted. And he came back to America, and he couldn't wrap his mind around that some people hated him for just being born with a different skin color. To him, that was like, you know, other black people grow up with that; it becomes normalized for them. Um, other people in general, just, you know, I don't want to just say black people are the only people that face that, but we all all just kind of grow up with like hatreds that don't make sense. It becomes normalized. This was a thing that was not normalized for him. So when he came back, he decided to confront it. And so he wanted to confront it with the people that were kind of the, I guess the forefront of this, you know, let's go straight to the Ku Klux Klan. So he'd call them up and, He's a very articulate man, you know, he didn't sound, you know, people talk about you sound black or whatever. I guess he's one of those guys that don't necessarily sound black. And so he'd call him up and say, I'd like to meet with you, you know, and talk about like what you do and everything. And then he'd show up at their door. <laughs> and um, I really like that he said, like somebody asked him, well, how did you deal with the racism? Because sometimes the people would slam the door on his face, they'd tell him off. 
And he said, well, I expected to be called a nigger by these people. You know, like this is the Klan. I came prepared. If somebody called me that on the street, it would bother me. It'd bother me greatly. But I knew what I was getting into. I knew the mindsets I was working with. So when I showed up at that door and, you know, somebody shouted nigger at me, like, I was prepared for it. That's what I came here for, to, like, face this, to, like, push this. And this guy was so into getting to know these people and befriending them. Um, And, yeah, that's the part that just kind of blows me away. He didn't just try to confront them as in, like, protesting in front of their house. He, uh... (laughs) Teresa looks like she's dying to say something here. Well, in one example... Um, the blues musician, he has like a tour bus. So, okay. So I stole the the story. Mm -hmm. So he has this tour bus and he's like going on shows or whatever. And his friend that he has met from the, the KKK, the group was, the KKK group was trying to get to a rally, but the bus companies wouldn't rent them a bus because they were going as a hate group to a protest and they were afraid that the bus was going to get vandalized. So the blues musician guy was like listening to his friend from the KKK talking about how he couldn't get a bus and the blues musician guy's like, well, why don't you just take mine? (laughs) Mind blown. Mind completely blown. But I also, and and Gumby might circle back on this too, but I also wanted to point out that Again, this documentary wasn't just one-sided because a a little bit later on in the documentary, the blues musician guy, he met with some young black protesters, and it um, it was a struggle to communicate. So in other words, nobody was perfect in this documentary. This guy is not a saint. Um, He may very well have some sort of fetish with the KKK. We don't know, but I was just really impressed with his curiosity and his genuine, um, just, I don't know, like he was trying to get to know the human beings, and he actually convinced this grand wizard um, in the KKK to quit because the guy in the KKK couldn't justify, like, I've got this friend who happens to be black, and... I I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't talk shit about all black people because here's one as an example that's, like, really there for me. Yeah, and when he uh, was talking with the, those young black people that were protesters, that was a really interesting conversation because uh, they said, you know, of course, they were angry to begin with. Like, you know, we're trying to fight these people and you're going out there making friends with them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what about, why aren't you making friends with the black people? What about all the people they hurt? What about your people? You know, mm-hmm. like, I hear you say you think you're doing something good, but like there are other needs to be met. And uh, he actually was kind of rude to mm-hmm. those people, I thought. You know, he's not perfect. So in that, the course of that interview, he was like, he's a very smart man and he seemed to get kind of condescending with them. Like, treat them like they're very ignorant and everything. And so I thought we kind of saw a little bit of his imperfections there Mm -hmm. and they end up storming out. You know, they didn't want to talk to him anymore. And at the very end, he was starting to make peace with at least one of them at the end of the the documentary. But another favorite scene of mine was, uh, he said through his trying to get to know these neo-Nazis and these, um, these clan members, he had gotten to know the the etiquette, the ceremonies of the clan so good that actually one time there was this clan member that got promoted to like grand dragon of a district. And he was too embarrassed to admit he didn't know what that meant. He didn't know what to do or what his duties were. So he called this black blues musician and the black blues musician is like, oh yeah, I know exactly what that, that, that role is. You know, let me tell you what you're supposed to do. So he actually helped him be a better member of the clan. But like Teresa said, like these guys kept quitting the clan because through their friendship with him, it was like, it slowly wore, wore, wore them down. It evaporated their, their rigid hatred. They're like, well, you know, how can I be in the clan? Like, I, I got to admit this guy's of my friend. He's cool. So they'd hand him his robes. They were almost like trophies of like, um, people's minds he'd changed and I think he had 20 something in his closet he had these clan robes in yeah, his closet it was extensive I mean and and that was where like the the young black protesters that we were talking about they were like man what are you doing like so what you have these robes but I think 
at that point, and I'm really glad they kept this in the documentary because it, it could have easily been cut and just made to look like, you know, the blues musician was so awesome and he never made mistakes. But I love how, like, through, even through the miscommunication with the blues musician and the, the young black protesters, at least a little bit at the end, they started to understand, like, okay, maybe there is something to this communication thing. Like, maybe we don't need to just hate. And just like in the Two Rivers documentary, I mean, how easy would it have been for the Indians, for the native people of that land to just be like, screw you white people. Like, we don't want to talk to you. We hate you. So I just, once again, like escaping societal norms of just like hating the people that aren't you um, and giving them a chance and communicating. Yeah. And um, back to two rivers, you know, I'm thinking about the part that moved me and like I teared up and I, I think I just remembered what part that was. It's mm-hmm. when the white people are saying like, I know we've done the wrong, you know, it's like through, through everything I've learned of history, I know that my people have done you wrong. And this way I'm living is part of that. Like, what can I do? And I think that really spoke to me because I know that's a feeling I've had is like, I didn't ask to be born in this culture. I didn't ask to be born white. And sometimes it feels like a heavy, it often feels like a very heavy burden to bear that I know that I'm part of a culture and I don't know how else to live. You know, that's why we're exploring escaping society, but we haven't accomplished it. So we're still living in a way that um, benefits from destroying these people. And, you know, like the people in that, that documentary, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to make amends or if there is a way to make amends for that. Um, but, yeah, that was just something that I remembered about Two Rivers. But back to accidental courtesy, another thing that I liked about this guy, kind of in the same vein, um, I remember he was talking to the head of the neo-Nazi party. And this guy was very articulate and sat down and was talking to him, you know, very reasonably about, you know, um, white supremacy and how the, the white way of life was kind of under attack. And um, the black blues musician said yet another thing I really admired. He said, well, you know, I didn't ask to be born black. I am, in fact, a black man, and I'm here in front of you. What can I do to help your race? If you feel like the white race is, like, mm-hmm. under attack, Instead of arguing with him, instead of saying, what the hell are you talking about? Look what the white race is doing. You know, the reaction so many of us would have. This guy sat down and said, like, again, he just blew my mind. Like, he said, as a black man, you know, I can't just put on white skin and, like, help you from the white side. If you feel like your race needs help, as a black man, what can I do? Holy crap. I mean, (laughs) what an individual in this time of divisiveness, in this time of everybody pointing their damn fingers instead of looking at their their own selves of what they can do. Here's this one guy, like, just talking to these people that are parts of hate groups and asking, how can I help? You guys, I hear you expressing some kind of pain, grievance. I am who I am. How can I help? And oh, my God, like... The things, some of the things that got rolling from that. It's, it was such a controversial and poignant documentary. Another thing that really blew my mind and got me thinking, accidental courtesy. You want to introduce the next one? Sure. Um, the next one was called Magic Trip. And it is about Ken Casey, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, I read a couple of his books a while back. I was familiar with this magic bus trip because I'd read, I think, a book by him or about him, probably by him loosely about this trip. So we got the documentary, and it's this bus. I think they called it Further. Yes, not Farther. Further. Further, yeah. That was written on the bus. And, like, if you've ever read any Jack Kerouac, there's Dean Moriarty from On the Road, who is based on... Neil Cassidy. Neil Cassidy Cassidy was actually the driver for this bus. They found him. (laughs) This was after Jack Kerouac had written his book and everything. And they're like, hey, would you drive this bus? We're going to, like, take a bunch of acid. Ken Casey had experimented with LSD and got a hold of a bunch. And we're just going to, like, do drugs and, like, reject society and take this bus and just travel the country and see what happens. And so it's the story of them doing that. And I didn't realize how much of the 60s movement, how much of that flavor of that style came from this one trip. Um, It was at a time, I don't know the exact year, 
but it was at a time when like the beatniks were starting to kind of fade away you know the jack kerouac crowd was starting to feel like the past the flower children had not come yet so it's this transition time where you got these guys with like you know their haircuts and everything sort of still looking like you know the 60s um but they're starting to really let go you know lsd is coming on the scene they're starting to feel like wow i'm not just like rejecting the government or like the status quo i'm rejecting what has been taught to me as reality Mm -hmm. it's a time when like carlos castaneda you know those kind of things are like either coming on the scene or right around the corner i mean carlos castaneda started studying with don juan in the late 60s so around that time whether they knew it yet or not you know that was happening there was a lot of that in the air it seemed like at the time of just like let's question as far as we can question just the nitty-gritty nature of reality so watching this this documentary with as much footage as they could um compile together of these guys was really fascinating and when they got done with their trip apparently they would just have these groups that they would like invite people over everybody would trip acid and they would play their whole all their footage which is apparently really disjointed and would go for (laughs) days imagine that yeah all the footage that they had gotten (laughs) that was like not composed into a documentary so this was an effort to take that footage and make it into a digestible, you know, like, two-hour documentary. Um, yeah. What do, what do you want to add to that, Teresa? I don't know. I don't know if I have anything else to add to that. But it was – I think you should just give it a try. Check it out. Magic Trip, the, the story of Ken Casey and the Merry Pranksters traveling to the World's Fair, I think it was. And there was just random people on this bus. I think one of them was pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and another thing, like, I love uh, moral ambiguity, you mm-hmm. know, I don't like being told who the good guys and bad guys are, so there were a lot of shit that, that uh, a lot of, lots of stuff that happened on this bus, like, this one girl kind of lost her mind, like, they had the LSD and orange juice, and she just started drinking it, like, guzzling it, and she completely flipped out, she started, like, after they got her on the bus and took off, she was, like, dancing naked on top of the bus, and, like, truckers were getting behind the bus and honking, and <laughs> she just lost her mind, and they left her in a town. Like, they they had to uh, commit her to a psych, psychiatric ward, mm-hmm. and Ken Casey's just like, well, the trip must go on, and, you know, it kind of sounded like he was on sort of an ego trip himself trying to run this thing. So, you know, there were times when you're like, man, that doesn't sound like a very good, like, tribe. You know, I don't know if I'd feel safe with this group of people, but... It was a fascinating thing that happened in history that uh, inspired so many of the things that if you're not familiar with this bus ride, you're familiar with a lot of the things that came from this bus ride. And there were a lot of, like, they met Jack Kerouac, and they were talking about how heavy, and, like, at this point in his life, he seemed so adult and heavy, and he wasn't tripping acid, and he was just kind of this sort of gloomy presence of this party they attended. And then they went to visit Timothy Leary and... um, gosh this other guy who later went on to become ram das and they were sort of the lsd gurus and um timothy leary didn't want anything to do with them they were like showing up and shooting fireworks in his yard like they they came with (laughs) their bus right into this guy's yard and they're like boom boom shooting fireworks like just crazy crap and you can just see like you know (laughs) how you'd feel so timothy treadwell is just like oh fuck this No, not Timothy Treadwell, <laughs> Timothy Leary. And he was like, oh, screw this, you know, like he just, he left. Um, but yeah, interesting and really entertaining documentary. Mm-hmm. And another documentary, to keep this rolling, um, of someone who's traveling, different flavor, but I watched this movie shortly after it came out. It might have been about 2012, 2013 when I watched it. And the documentary is called Craigslist Joe. So if you are familiar with Craigslist, a lot of people don't like it nowadays, but in its heyday, it was like the go-to place to get stuff for free or for really cheap. Um, But something that was a little less explored at the time this documentary was made was how you could use Craigslist to travel and stay with people and get to know people and like maybe even pick up a gig and maybe even get like a ride to the next city that you want to go to. So this guy, young man, he decided that he was going to travel for 30 days using only Craigslist. And he was able to like connect with people to give him rides across the country, um, to stay at their place, to like get connected with people in the cities, whether it was some sort of meetup or party or 
whatever um, via Craigslist. And that just really inspired me. This was before I met Gumby and before I started hitchhiking. But um, we rewatched it recently and we were we were like, oh, man, imagine how this could help us when we're traveling, well, like our upcoming trip. Like we could check out the Craigslist in a town or city that we're headed toward and just ask, like, does anybody have this? Can Do we have, you know, uh, space available available where we could park our van or like whatever. So I found it really inspiring back then. And I, once again, when we watched it together, I found it inspiring then too. You want to add anything? Yeah, there are so many movies and documentaries that I introduced Teresa to. This is one she introduced me to. Um, and I don't really have a whole, I don't feel like I have as much to say about this one as other ones. It wasn't like a moving, poignant, thought-provoking documentary, like a lot of my favorites. But what it did give me was a new idea of a resource, because mm-hmm. this guy was traveling strictly by Craigslist. He wasn't hitchhiking. Um, he wasn't using so many of the resources I've learned I can use. So just watching what he could do just by Craigslist, um, this was before I got this iPad. And this was one of the, the documentaries that got me thinking how nice it would be to have something like an iPad. Because I was thinking, holy crap, you know, if I put together what I know with what I just learned that this guy could do, wow, that's a lot of resources being on the road. And if I could just fit this light little flat iPad that I can charge wherever into my backpack and get online now and then and check Craigslist, wow, add that to hitchhiking. I mean, that's a lot of resources, not to mention free events that you can help out with and uh, something we've learned um, haven't done too much ourselves yet, but we've learned through reading other people that um, are homeless recommend, and it makes a lot of sense, is volunteering. Because mm-hmm. you may think like, well, you know, I'm not really like, you know, I mean, helping out with this event or whatever isn't my thing. But there's so many resources that come with that, so many opportunities that can come because you helped out. Maybe taking home leftovers, you know, a mountain of free food. Uh, who knows? You meet somebody cool there that's like, you know, that's where you meet cool people a lot of times, It's unusual places that, that could help you out. Maybe having access to a building that the event took place in and you could, like, crash there overnight or whenever you need to, like, store your stuff there. Yeah, and his favorite, uh, my favorite ride that he got was this woman that turned out to be, what, a fetishist? Like, a dominatrix, <laughs> a dominatrix. or something? <laughs> yeah. <Gumby>. So, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so... Uh, can I introduce the next one? Sure, yeah. And let's see, where are we? We've, we've talked about Grizzly Man, Two Rivers, Accidental Courtesy, Magic Trip, Craigslist Joe. And the next one we have on our list is one of my favorites, definitely, Kumare. K-U-M-A-R-E. Um, this was a guy of Indian um, ethnicity that grew up and he was talking about his heroes were all these like, you know, Hindu gods and everything. And they'd shoot lightning bolts and have all these superpowers. He said, those are my superheroes growing up, mm-hmm. growing up in an Indian household um, that had come over to America. So he grew up in America. And he decided to do a documentary on gurus. So he first set out meeting these gurus, including Ram Das. He went to India and met gurus, and he was just really disappointed. He felt like all these guys are full of shit. <laughs> They're all, like, abusing their power. They're all, like, you know, like, saying how great they are and how, like, crappy the other guy is. And a lot of them are sleeping with very young women and justifying it because they're enlightened beings. And, you know, he was he became more interested in why people tend to follow other people. That became his passion instead of, you know, let's learn about gurus. So he had this brilliant idea. He's Indian, so people tend to, you know, feed into the stereotype of the Indian guru. So he came up with this name, Kumare. And I don't remember where he got the name or if he, even if he said, but that wasn't his real name. And he started, he took just a few yoga classes to learn a few things about stretches and stuff and started walking around barefoot in his robes and grew his beard out and talking with an Indian accent. He said he uh, got it from his grandmother. He tried to copy his grandmother. He (laughs) wanted to see... Go ahead. Oh, he also hired two women to be kind of his props in in this Kumare 
uh, what would you call it? Experiment. Experiment, yeah. So he had kind of a follower and someone also to, like, arrange his events. And the experiment was that he was starting a cult. Yeah. Well, here, you take this back. (laughs) So, yeah, so he's got these two women that he hired. Um, I guess they were actresses, maybe. And he just started going, like, rented a little place, did a little yoga, yoga session. And as people showed up, you know, he would, like, try to see how far he could push it. You know, like, I would like to hear about how you feel in your life. And, you know, just... Like, instead of just teaching stretches, like, kind of open himself more and more. And he found, like, all these things that worked. Like, the more he listened, the more people thought, like, oh, you were so wise. And your energy, just like, I've never met anyone like you. And he started fucking with him a little bit. Like, he'd write this symbol that looked like two balls and a penis. And he'd say, <laughs> this is the symbol of a penis in my country. I, w- I will draw a penis on your head. And sure enough, he drew a penis on their head. <laughs> Happiness. Happiness. I wish you much happiness. (laughs) And so at first it's kind of a funny thing for him too. You know, let's just see how much people will follow. Just like, can anybody just go and start a cult with just a little bit of bullshit? But after a while he starts getting this tight knit group of people and he starts really getting involved in their lives. You know, they're really investing a lot in him and he starts caring about these people. So, his experiment was to do this for a while and then pull the plug, kind of come out like a, ha ha, gotcha, you know, like I'm not really Kumari. But he's gone down like the roadways with these people and it's not so easy. He doesn't feel like that anymore. And so it's getting to be time to like reveal himself. And he is thinking, what can I do with this last week or so? So he starts trying to really emphasize to them. Oh, and the whole time, he's telling them, what you see here, this Kumari, it is complete illusion. I am the biggest faker you have ever met. And, you know, the people are like, oh, you know, he's transcended reality. Like, that's what he means. But he's literally telling them he's full of shit. (laughs) So he decides, you know, when it's getting close to the time to reveal himself, like, he wants to turn it into a lesson. He wants to, like, show them, you don't need a guru. So he's working with these people and saying... I will be the student. I am you. You are me. Tell me three things that I need to do to improve my life in the course of a year, and we will make a commitment. So, like, these people know what they need to do. And just by him, like, being this presence, not, you know, pulling something out of the ether or some holy book, they just knew, like, okay, I really need to accomplish this. I need to meditate more. I need to do this or that. And just by him holding the space, like, they start reaching these goals and realizing, like, I can be my own guru. So it comes time for him to reveal himself. And he's, like, they show him in the bathroom, and he's getting ready, and they're meeting at this pool. And, like, he's so nervous, he's, like, I think he does throw up, like, before meeting them. And so, yeah, man, I love that scene because he's sitting on his cushion. Everybody's around the pool. They've got their white robes on. He's got the two women on each side of him, and they look nervous as hell. They just look like, oh, my God, are these people going to, like, kill us? <laughs> and so, you know, he begins to talk. And then he never breaks out of his Indian accent, his fake Indian accent. He couldn't do it. He couldn't, like, let go of Kumadri. So the night ends with a ceremony, and he wishes them well. He will, you know, be back in a while. He must travel, and he doesn't know what to do. He couldn't do it. He was he lost his nerve. So he goes back home. He's, like, you know, got his little ponytail. He's got his, like, beard, and he's, you know, hanging out with his friends, and he's just saying how empty he feels. Like, he's gotten so used to being Kumadri that going back to the person he actually was is, like, stale. <laughs> But finally, he decides it's the time, so at the very end of the... Well, should I give that away? No, I'm not going to give that away. I think I've given enough. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give the final scene. So, But that is a fascinating documentary about why do we need leaders? Mm-hmm. Um, as far as escaping society, and for me, a big part of that is my, my interpretation, my feelings towards anarchism... Um, I think a big part of that is why do we follow the people who are leading us to bad places? And I feel like that is a question that really gets explored in this documentary. Um, don't we already know the answers? Why do we need these like religions that 
lead us into these extreme places, these politicians that don't serve us. Don't we already know how to lead ourselves? And that's something Kumari explored. Yeah, I definitely really liked that documentary as well. And don't go too far, Gumby. Don't go as far as I want. <laughs> uh, so the next documentary on the list is called I Am. And Gumby introduced this one to me. I think he actually, this is like one of the few things that you owned as far as the documentaries. It was so good, he decided. Yeah, I couldn't get it to the library, so I had to buy it on Amazon. Yeah, so I, I kind of want you to describe it. The one thing that Gumby would always point out is at the end, who was it that pointed to themselves? I can't remember the author. Um, so I Am is really interesting. It it is a documentary by the director of, I think he did Dumb and Dumber. He definitely did Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. But a lot of those like really kind of stupid, funny movies, um, like the Jim Carrey type of movies, comedies, uh, like towards the early 90s maybe. But he was riding his bike one day, and he got in a really bad accident, and it gave him this um, disease or this, uh, this condition that he was really depressed. He couldn't, like, motivate himself. It was sort of this weird neurological condition. And he had made it big. He was this big Hollywood guy, had the great big house, had all the money. And um, after months, you know, his friends, who he thought were his friends, stopped visiting him. And he decided, like, I think this is it. I think this is the end of my life. Like, if I want to say one more thing to the world... You know, I make movies. Maybe I'll make a documentary. What would that thing be? And he said that thing that he wanted to say was that this is all BS. Like, if what you've been taught is true, I should be the happiest person. And even before this thing happened to me, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I had everything. I had everything money could buy. I was at the top. And I want to tell you, as somebody from the top, it's a lie. And so he seeks out to interview a lot of people, including this, like, Rumi interpreter and uh, Daniel Quinn. Mm-hmm. Daniel Quinn's in there. Um, Howard Zinn, I think, was interviewed. A lot of interesting people, a lot of interesting thinkers. But this was also the documentary that first gave me the word Wetico, um, the first time I heard that word. And it was described as the a disease that runs through our culture, that indigenous cultures don't have the way we do. They've experienced it. They know to watch out for it. But our culture has defined itself by this wetico, this cannibal sickness, this idea that I can benefit, um, I can amass wealth of whatever I call wealth to your detriment, and that that's okay, that we can still call ourselves a community. This is a bizarre idea that is unique to our culture, that we can have a poor person right around the corner from a very wealthy person and still consider them the same society. This is something that's strange for the way we live and is not the way any other culture on the earth has ever lived. Um, apparently it's really good for winning wars, for expanding, for power. It's it's a crummy way to take care of the people within it. Um, yeah, so a lot of these escaping society, anarchist ideas really either got started with this documentary or the ones I already had got uh, kind of another kickstart with it. He also talks about how interconnected we are. Um, One of the experiments he talks about is, uh, well, gosh, there was actually a lot of experiments, but one, he puts these little wires in yogurt, and this guy's interviewing him, the scientist that is saying, like, we have picked up you know, yogurt actually is picking up on your emotional state. And so you, he starts talking to the, the director. And whenever he talks about something stressful, the yogurt starts showing signs of like being stressed. It's picking up on his stress. And he's saying, you know, this is just yogurt. Like this is your regular old yogurt that is, could be sitting in your fridge. It knows how you feel. So consider the implications of that. If this is yogurt, how interconnected are the things that you already think of as more sentient, as more like you? How interconnected are we all? He talks about how the heart has neurological cells that actually a lot of what we think of as thought comes from the heart. It's not all brain-oriented as um, 
has been taught in recent decades. They're starting to realize the heart has more to do with it, which actually ties back into a lot of ancient beliefs that the heart is the center of the human being. Um, and just these weird things that indicate connection, like they've got these random number generators all over the globe. I don't remember how many of them, but they're spaced all over the globe. And they, they just spit out random numbers. That's their whole job. Random numbers, random numbers. And the reason why they do this, why somebody's even built this thing and studied it, is because they've noticed that every now and then the numbers aren't random. They'll start like lining up. They won't be random anymore. And what they've noticed is that these random numbers will become less random when there's big events, a huge earthquake, something that like affects the globe. Um, the numbers will become less random. The biggest one to date, at least at the making of this documentary, they said, was 911, the uh, the World Trade Center. They said that was the biggest reaction they'd seen where the numbers became less random. And the other weird part of this is that the numbers start becoming less random before the event. So they become less random before the event, during the event, and after the event. So our idea of linear time, like cause and effect, isn't quite what we think it is. At least these numbers are suggesting that. Um, and towards the end, I mean, just, God, there's so much content in this movie, I don't want to even try to cover it all. It would uh, kind of, I think, detract from the documentary. But they really stress about how, you know, if you're cold in the woods, naked, you're shivering, that if somebody gives you, like, invites you into their cabin, getting a little more stuff makes a big difference. You've got a fire, you've got a blanket, you've got a cup of warm soup, you are indeed happier. The lie is that if you keep doubling that, your happiness will keep doubling. That now, because you have a trash can full of soup, a blazing bonfire, and like 30 blankets, it doesn't mean that you're like 30 times as happy. And that's one of the traps we get stuck in. It's like the right things make a difference. Too much, it doesn't make you happier. And that's what this director was exploring. Um, and at the end, we find out why it's called I Am, because there's this author, and I wish I could remember what his name was. But this newspaper asked him, like, what do you think's wrong with the world? Why are we having all this trouble, this conflict? Like, what's going on? What is wrong with the world, in your opinion? And this author wrote back two words. He said, I am. And so the director was saying how inspired he was by that. Like, he put the full responsibility on himself. You know, that's what's wrong with the world. I'm a part of this. I am. This is where my power is. And I like the kind of message of hope at the end where the guy's saying, like, I hope someday that I can find a way to, like, be a force of good, of helping to heal things. And when somebody asks what's right with the world, I can write two words and say, I am. And, uh, yeah, another another scene before I leave this documentary. Um, one of the guys talking was saying when he was a little kid, there was this farmer that came up to him, and, and he, he had a lemonade stand, the little kid. And the farmer said, do you see that? Do you, do you see the wind blowing the, the leaves of those trees? And, yeah, and he said, do you, see, do you see that dust coming up or that car in the distance? And he says, yeah, and you see all that grass moving? And, you know, and do you do you see the the way the sun like glistens on the rocks and the light moves? And he said he leaned over to the kid like he's whispering a secret and said, "It's all alive." <laughs> and that's not really like a pivotal, poignant thing necessarily, but I don't know. That always stayed with me. You know, I think about that often, um, just as a reminder. Like it's all alive. There's nothing I set my eyes on that's dead. It's all vibrating with life. And I just love how, I mean, I would rather watch documentaries than just a straight up movie because I feel like even though it is propaganda, just like movies are, I can often like get past some mental barrier that maybe I had no idea uh, that was a way I could think or that was something that someone else has already, you know, explored and gone down that rabbit hole. So yeah, this um, I Am documentary was that way. And uh, the next documentary, it came out fairly recently. What, last November or October or something? Depends on which one you're talking about. This one here. But at any rate, um, Michael Moore is one of my favorite uh, documentary makers. And uh, Fahrenheit 11.9 uh, came out in 2018, I believe. 
and we went to go see that in the theaters, and everyone had been talking it up as far as, oh, this is going to be some sort of Donald Trump or President Trump bashing documentary, and, you know, it, it was, it seemed to be very divisive, and, uh, wow, what a shocker. Like, this was a documentary that even Gumby, I think it, it threw you off just seeing the transformation, a slight transformation in Michael Moore as far as his um, his own epiphanies. Yeah, I'm no big fan of Donald Trump, God knows, but um, I really hate the Trump bashers too because there always is this tone of like, things were good before Trump, and it's like, you know, if it took Trump to wake you guys up, well, that's one thing I like about Trump right there because <laughs> like the world has been killing 150 species a day before Trump. But everybody was just kind of going along with like, oh, you know, we have the first black president and maybe we'll have a woman president. And like, who gives a crap what gender or color they are if they're like supporting a system that kills 150 species a day? So I was kind of going in ready to be skeptical, like, oh, here we go with the great liberal leftist Trump bashing, you know, like if it wasn't for them, the world would be great. Like, you know, the left didn't do anything wrong. Um but no, Michael Moore, he seems to have reached a new level of disgust with our society, which makes me like him more because he went on to Obama. You know, I loved when he's talking about how Obama handled the Flint water crisis and just the crooked crap he did and sent the army in to do like a demonstration or like a training thing right in Flint right after this whole water thing and this little stunt he did with the water to sort of discredit the people that are dying of lead poisoning in this town. And, uh, you know, he talks about how the Obamas have taken more money from Goldman Sachs than anybody. And, you know, Michael Moore just didn't say anything at the time, but he was saying like how he threw up a little bit in his mouth when everybody's cheering Obama. Um, and at the end, you know, I really like how he ended this documentary where He's saying maybe it takes like a Donald Trump and he definitely thinks Donald Trump is a dangerous individual. Michael Moore does. But he says, even if he is, maybe it takes something like this for us to realize that we have never had the America we wanted. You know, it's not a new thing. This has been going on for a long time. And maybe it's time that we get up and fight. And if it took a Donald Trump to make that happen, then so be it. But I really like that. I found that to be one of the more... It's my favorite Michael Moore documentary. I found it really wow. rousing. Um, and I like docu Michael Moore's documentaries. They're very... Uh, he puts together a movie very well where it's entertaining, it's funny, it's poignant. It kind of takes you through all these moods. I, uh, I think Michael Moore's documentaries are often, like, uh, very propaganda-laden. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's definitely leftist-leaning. You know, he, he attacks the conservatives a lot more than the liberals. And I feel like, I mean, from my point of view, they're all kind of the same. Um, so I don't, I don't really, I'm not with them on that, but I do like his documentaries. I do get a lot of, uh, good things, good, good food for thought from his documentaries. If I just, you know, can kind of wade through the propaganda aspect of it. If you, if you had to talk about one other Michael Moore documentary, even just briefly, from the list that we have, would you want to do that? Like as far as... Oh, I know which one, yeah. Okay. All right, which one? All right, there's a lot of Michael Moore documentaries that I could talk about. I have favorite scenes, but I would pick Where to Invade Next, mm -hmm. which is, I think, the one he did right before Fahrenheit 11.9. And what I liked about this one, it actually was not my favorite documentary cinematographically... <laughs> uh, whatever word that is. In other words, I wasn't entertained as much as I was by the other documentaries. But the content I thought was really interesting, where he'd go to these other countries and see how, like, um, Norway, I think it was Norway, how they did their prison system. You know, it was actually, this is what a people who believe in rehabilitation, what this looks like. And they've got, like, the lowest murder rates, and things like that, the lowest, like, repeat offenders of crime, as opposed to America, who just takes out our anger and our aggression and beats the shit out of our criminals, mm -hmm. gives them a criminal record so they can't be good even if they want to. Um, I got in a little bit of trouble in my 20s, possession of stolen goods. And that record still follows me. I, there's still jobs I can't have, places I can't rent. So I can only imagine, and I never went to prison or anything for this. This was just, like, childish crap where I stole something and got caught for it and did my, t my probation but 
I can't imagine somebody who's got a real record. They don't have any choices. You almost have to go back into crime in this country. It's stupid. I mean, if you really think you're making the country safer, it doesn't freaking work. And one of the things I'm talking with the kids that we're working with a lot um, in summer camp is Finland. I ask them, do you know what country supposedly has the best educational system? I tell them it's Finland. I ask them, you know, some things they did to make them have such a, a high rating educational system. They got rid of homework. They had four hour long school days. And one of those hours is lunch. Um, they got rid of standardized testing. There's no multiple choice. Like you actually have to write the answer. You have to think about it and actually know it. And the big thing I love telling these kids, because this is a private school we teach at, and all these kids go to either that private school or some other private school, is they got rid of private school. Because I love what Michael Moore says about that. He says, you know, if you just have the rich and the powerful sending their kids here, what motivation is there to take care of the poor? And if part of your population is the poor, the underserved, you do not have a strong community. You've got problems. You've got problems that permeate many things. These are the people you have to have as neighbors. What, what kind of way is that to live when you have that resentment between people? And he says, maybe when you mix, you know, let all kids go to the same school, the rich and powerful are motivated to help all the schools rise. And maybe that rich kid is less apt to screw over the poor kid who grew he grew up with and was friends with when they are adults. And uh, yeah, uh, there's a lot I could say about that documentary too, but that was probably my favorite, most talked about part of it for me was the, the Finland school system. And we had so many other documentaries that we even had like an honorable mentions list. I think I might make a web page on our website that has some of like the movies that we talked about in a previous podcast, as well as these documentaries. Cause I feel like. Don't hold us to that though. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it today. It's really easy. Um, yeah, so just real quick, I'll just mention the ones that were on the main list that we didn't get to. Um, we just watched this one, Unacceptable Levels. And it was an interesting perspective of this family guy, his uh, husband with two kids, wife, and he started investigating like all the different chemicals ever since right after World War II. And it was very informative. Um, we didn't agree with everything he had to say in it, but um, felt like maybe he could go a little deeper with his uh, exploring of what to do next. But I thought it was really um, very informative. So check that one out, Unacceptable Levels, um, Why We Fight. That one was really good about explaining the military-industrial complex. Um all the way back to who Dwight Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Um, so check that one out, Why We Fight. Um, this documentary, The People Speak, was based on the book by Howard, Howard Zinn, um, The People's History of America. So check out the documentary, The People Speak. Um, and then I'll put the honorable mention ones on there. But one more um, before we go. Gumby, did you want to talk about your, uh, your beef with mm-hmm. yes, homeless do. documentaries? Yes, okay. I do. All right. The one thing. All right. Hopefully that wasn't too big of a uh, blip there. I hit the pause button. But anyway, my big beef with homeless documentaries and Tent City USA is one of the examples is um, all the homeless documentaries I've seen seem to suggest that the best thing we can do for the homeless is to help them be more like us, mm-hmm. us being, let's say, middle class. That would be the goal. Um, to me, this is nonsense. Already, there's so much evidence that with the number of people we have living like middle-class Americans, the world can't sustain this level of extravagance. So the nonsense, the insanity of thinking the, the kind thing to do is help poor people, homeless people, live like middle-class people is garbage. It doesn't bear the weight of any thinking person, any thought. What we all need to be doing is the rich people, the upper class, the middle class, maybe even the lower class. We need to be seeing how much we can be like the homeless. The homeless, you know, are so often suffering because they've been broken in some way by a culture that does not take care of its people. 
Maybe it's drug addiction. Maybe it's mental illness. Maybe it's just trauma of some kind. They get out there, and they're homeless, and by the time they get out there, usually they're damaged by something very often. And so we think of this homeless lifestyle, this not having a permanent house as intrinsically entwined with uh, you know, that kind of person. One of the things Teresa and I are trying to prove, trying to explore, is that it doesn't have to be that way. That you can live in many ways like a homeless person on the streets with your feet hitchhiking in a van. And uh, I mean, I'm not saying we're not mentally ill, but <laughs> we're maybe, all mentally ill. Yeah, maybe not in the typical ways you think of as homeless people. You don't have to be strung out on drugs and all these things that go with that. So I feel like we need to turn that upside down. I talk about upside down truths all the time, and that's a big one. The middle class, the, the, the homeless need to be helping the middle class be more like them not the other way around. And that's something I see in documentary after documentary about the homeless. Is like, let's help this homeless guy. Here's this homeless guy. Here's what happened to this homeless guy. Oh, here's the like heartwarming tale at the end. He got a house. You know, like, fuck the planet. The planet's already getting damaged because all of us with our houses and our lifestyles. Here's one more guy that gets to join the party. To me, that's not a happy ending. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't want to go off on too much of a rant because we're actually trying to write, wrap this up in around an hour and we're about to do a pretty good job. So <laughs> here, Teresa. Um, yeah, just to close this out, like I said, I will, um, I'll try to post a list of these documentaries and, you know, I'm just thinking, especially in like rainy weather or the colder months, maybe there are people out there that are like, I don't know, they're wired up enough to be watching DVDs or get Netflix or something. And you want to watch something that maybe speaks to you, speaks to your quest to uh, escape society. And so that's really what these, uh, these podcasts, especially like the movies and documentaries, is kind of just to give you some support. Um, and we've talked like about a lot of different documentaries, whether it's a guy living with grizzly bears or, or a black blues musician befriending a member of the KKK all the way to um, bashing, you know, liberals, conservatives, and Fahrenheit 11.9. So, yeah, we've covered a lot. But um, I feel like our website is the best place to go if you have any other comments, maybe you want to tell us about a documentary that you watched or maybe even a documentary that you've made. Um, our website is escaping society, all one word, dot weebly, W-E-E-B like boy, L-Y dot com. And um, check out the pages we have on there about our hitchhiking stories, our survival overnights in the woods, as well as our time on the street with our houseless retreats. And Gumby, is there anything else you want to say? Tune in for season two. Two, two. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and we hope to hear from you soon. Bye.